could have gone one of two ways unfortunately it did go the right way I'm doing fine I mean it's not really hit me I don't think it will hit me I'm kind of person who when it comes to serious things I do kind of play them off you know so people would think somebody's just had a, a cardiac arrest you would be a bit nervous you might really be taking it slow and it's the opposite for me I like to keep busy and I really don't like to think about it too much my family and friends have been great helping me do that and I have been recovering well the biggest problem that I've had since the episode last Tuesday was actually when I, I hit my head passing out and that's really been the thing that's bothering me because obviously that's very sore and I've got a bruised face but you wouldn't have thought I had a cardiac arrest a couple of days ago. Talk us through what happened the series of events that led to you from going to sleep that night to being in hospital. Well I have a implanted cardiac device in my chest which was implanted two and a half years ago it monitors my heart rate it monitors for any arrhythmias from my personal opinion I'm not sure how reliable it is for me I know it's definitely reliable for a lot of other people but it's been events where perhaps issues haven't been picked up and this event on Tuesday was one of them. I went to bed on Monday evening, felt absolutely fine, no problems at all. And it was in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, that my device triggered an episode. And it's very vague about what happens. It just lets you know it's gone off and you basically rely on Patworth to call you if there's an issue. I had no call. And I do have a cardiac alert dog who picks up on every cardiac event that I have. She's done it for years and she's never missed an episode. The only times when I have collapsed is when I haven't been around her or accidentally locked her in another room if I've gone through to the front room while she's sleeping with my partner in bed and she hasn't been able to get to me to alert. During this night when it went off, I rely on my cardiac alert dog to let me know when something's wrong and she didn't and I have complete faith in her and so I didn't bother waking up my partner it was three in the morning so I thought there was no problem Lola would alert me if there was something wrong and she didn't but just to be sure I did get up from bed I did walk around the house and Lola did follow she didn't give any of her alerting signals so I did go back to bed reassured but half an hour later after getting in bed Lola was sick which is really uncommon for her and it was really out of the blue because I couldn't think why she was sick she hadn't had anything before but the issue is if Lola is unwell she tends to not alert because obviously she's not feeling great and she's distracted. This did throw a spanner in the works and I did have to think, was I having an arrhythmia and she just couldn't alert because she's not well or was she right? And unfortunately, I soon found out what happened. I was clearing up. I went to the toilet afterwards and it appears as I was leaving the toilet, that is when I suddenly lost consciousness, collapsed. I hit my head on the door frame, which split my forehead open, causing me to bleed a lot. And I was unconscious for a long time and it was only by pure luck that my partner woke up at four. Sorry I wasn't there. She sent me a text message asking if I was okay uh, and that she needed to go to the toilet. She did wait 10 minutes. She didn't hear anything back. So she got up. She went and knocked on the door and obviously heard no response. So she quickly opened the door from the outside and found me lying on the floor in a pool of blood, hardly conscious. She did what she normally does when I have these events where there's been a head injury or complications and she called for an ambulance. And the ambulance turned up very quickly and handled the situation from there. It's on the way to hospital where things took a turn. I was absolutely fine. After the collapse, I remember feeling a sore head, but no problems. The paramedics had me hooked up to a heart monitor and had the defib pads on. I had no issues, no arrhythmias that were concerning them. You know, naturally I have a fast heart rate. That's part of my heart condition is that I'm constantly tachycardic at resting. So when I'm sleeping, when I'm sitting down, my heart rate is 150 to 200, which is double what most people's are. You know, my, my heart's going at a speed of somebody running a marathon and that's 24 seven, but it is a normal heart rate just fast. So it's not serious in that sense. But on the way to hospital, where they were obviously rushing me, because obviously paramedic did see a, a little blip, but not enough to say exactly what was happening. 
and he was good in the sense that he was certain that he saw a blip in the waves that's the little lines on an ECG he told me that he saw one moment where it just seemed a bit funny and he kept an eye on it on the way to the hospital in the back of the ambulance who were rushing me in on lights and sirens and it was on Hills Road where there was an issue and I lost consciousness again and that caused obviously a big issue because it wasn't just a normal loss of consciousness I did actually go for good he told me they were going fast to hospital anyway but he said they absolutely flew in because of what was happening and the cardiac arrest fortunately they were able to bring me round and I remember waking up at the hospital but still in the back of the ambulance flat with a massive mask on my face which felt like I had my head out of the window of a car and lots of people around me I'm used to arriving at hospital and just being taken off and into A&E but they were doing obviously a lot of work around me in the back of the ambulance to make sure I was stable before moving me and thank you for being so open and honest about what happened to you we're obviously so pleased that you're still here and that you're back on the road to recovery now but when and why did you begin campaigning it started from when I was in my early teens 11 12 where I suffered from eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia myself as well as depression and I did suffer in silence for a couple of years nobody knew I mean I was like many people with eating disorders and, and mental health conditions I was good at concealing it at that time you know males and eating disorders didn't really go hand in hand you didn't really associate them with men so in a way during that time it aided my ability to continue those mental illnesses fortunately after a couple of years of psychiatric help and antidepressants I recovered from my eating disorders and depression and it was then that I had the kind of eureka moment in 2012 where I thought I would have really benefited benefited from speaking to somebody who could perhaps relate to the problems I had, whether they were going through depression or had eating disorders themselves, and via a way that didn't cause such anxiety like phone calls do for a lot of people or face-to-face. I thought that speaking to somebody via social media or email would be a great way to talk to somebody because it's something that's easy to do. Young people are always on their phone and social media. And then because I already had skills in web design and coding, I set up my own website and started from there and it really just took off. And what sort of work have you done so far to date? Oh, that's a lot. Other than the organisational's work, which is to provide a level of support to those who come to us, but mainly to signpost people to the right services. It can be related to mental health or it can we do help for all kinds of problems. We have the rule that we don't say no, but mainly people come to us for advice and help and we signpost them to the medical professionals who can help or recommendations to GPs or if they're too afraid to take the first step themselves then we aid in helping them do that whether that's speaking to their GP on their behalf or we speak to family members or friends who can help them take that step. We've done a lot to reduce stigma around mental health by doing campaigns. A couple of years ago we did a campaign where people submitted a picture of them holding up a mental illness. Some of them uncommon that people have not heard of because when you think of mental illness you tend to think of depression, eating disorders, schizophrenia. There were lots of mental illnesses that people hadn't heard of and we were doing this campaign to make people aware of vast amount of mental illnesses there were and to reduce the stigma we've spoke with a lot of important people who can help bring change or again put out more awareness last year I was picked up by the royal family as because of my work and I received a, a letter from the Queen who invited myself and my partner to Buckingham Palace to meet members of the royal family and other dignitaries to discuss our work, how we could work well together because Prince William, Harry and Kate have their own mental health campaign and they were interested in working together, which we are doing. And as well as working with 
others I'm still doing my part on getting more leaflets posters out into public places gyms changing rooms as well as thinking of new campaigns that we can do to help get support out for people with mental health problems but also I'm doing a lot for male and mental health so towards the end of last year I wrote an article for a mental health magazine speaking about men and mental health problems the stigma attached to that and how men need to not be afraid of seeking help I went on how men obviously have this pressure to be financially emotionally and socially stable in life so lots of men tend not to open up about their problems or get help because fear that they would lose their job or it would affect their social status or their partner or other females would think they were weak in a way so it goes on about the manly thing isn't hiding these mental health problems the manly thing is opening up about it and getting help but obviously highlighting the difficulty it would take us to get there and the difficulty is that men very rarely go to to their GP for physical problems so the chances of them going to the GP for mental health problems is even lower so it is a challenge but things are improving and they're improving because of males who are opening up about their story like myself and showing other males that it's okay to get help and talk to one another but also encouraging females to reassure men that it's not a problem and when when they see males talking about them that they don't act in a way that would put men off talking about it in the future encouraging them and, and speaking to them then the next thing that I'm doing and the organization is doing is trying to push for more mental health support and awareness in the workplace like first aid mental health you know when you get a new job and most places do do health and safety whether that's just showing you how to lift boxes properly or the fire exits and where to go if you hurt and what to do that we're trying to push for there to be some kind of mental health first aid and compulsory in the workplace because there are a lot of problems that you're through the hoops and, and slip through people's fingers because there are people suffering a lot and they spend a lot of their time at work when you think about how long we spend at work and we spend with family and friends we spend quite a lot of our time at work and that's a good place for people to spot if somebody's got a problem and, and speak to people and we're trying to encourage people in the workplace to talk to one another that could be a make a big difference and if you do feel there's a problem with your co-worker speak to them or speak to the professional at your workplace who deals with these kind of things but also trying to get employers to not pressure their employees or feel like they're going to be punished if they have to seek help or have to take time off for their own mental health there's a lot of things that we're, we're working towards and a lot of things that we have done but the issue and the things that we have to do are significant and our work is definitely not done. And what about the future plans for you as well? What's in the pipeline? We are looking to do more talks at schools, colleges, universities for all ages, especially as as a male, I give talks on my story and that definitely has had a, a positive effect and the feedback we've had is, has been great, but also negotiating with different people such as MPs, people on the boards of mental health organisations or the NHS who can perhaps bring improvements to the mental health service that we know need to happen. That includes issues that I knew were a problem when I was in the mental health system and one of those key issues was the transition from adolescence mental health service to the adult. So when you reach a certain age you're moved from the adolescence mental health service to the adult because you've turned 17, 18. For 
me at the time, that was a big issue because I had built a bond and trust with my psychiatrist and where I was, which was at Brookside, I was comfortable there and I was making progress and I was getting better. It was then I was told that I would be moving to the adult mental health, which is completely different. It instilled fear in me. I'm not sure why at the time. I know why now. And that's because you know you're vulnerable and you know you've been telling this person all your vulnerabilities and they've been talking to you and helping you. And now you're faced with this problem that you're no longer going to be seeing them and you're going to be chucked into the deep end such with a a new person who's helping you but also where there's going to be lots of adults you know in the waiting room and so on who are there to receive support as well and it can be scary when you're a young person and you're then put in an environment when it's just lots of adults and at the time I felt that even though I knew I was growing up I wasn't ready to be flung into the adult mental health service and put amongst all these older people it terrified me and over the years it's only reaffirmed that it isn't just me because people who come to us have that same issue and still up to today it's a massive issue and people that I've spoke to that includes counsellors who have noticed the same issues either with people they've spoke to or their own children even a couple of months ago when I had a meeting with some labour counsellors they were talking about that issue before they've even met me and the fact that I brought it up they were jumped straight onto it as in they knew that was a big problem and thanks to that meeting a couple of months ago we have now been able to secure a meeting with the chief executive of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough NHS to discuss these problems. In terms of mental health generally as well, how far are we in terms of understanding mental health as a society? Has it got better? How far have we got to go before we can fully understand it? We're definitely making progress. Obviously, there are a lot of issues in mental health and everything that it involves, whether it's the waiting times from going to your GP to then being seen or the services that are then available and the quality of them whilst you're receiving mental health care and also the issues when it comes to crisis issues where people really need help there's really not a place for them to go in crisis and most people go to A&E which obviously is not a suitable place I mean it's the best place at the moment but it's not the right place the stigma is definitely being improved and people are talking about it a lot better they're talking about the issues more and I'm noticing more about that with men as well but we're also noticing a lot of high profile people who are coming out about their problems and of course sadly we're seeing a lot of high profile people end their lives. The silver lining in that is that it is creating more awareness of mental health problems and that it doesn't matter how rich you are or how happy you may be or you could have everything in the world. Mental health problems can take over anybody and it can push someone to end their own life and these kind of significant events are pushing and forcing the people who can make changes to make those changes and it's involving people who perhaps have not been involved in mental health before or creating awareness lots and lots of people are now pushing for improvements to the mental health services and all of that is contributing to putting pressure on the people who can make those changes samuel thank you very much for talking about your experiences if you're having some problems with your mental health or you know someone that's struggling at the moment there are lots of good outlets out there the campaign against living miserably mind the samaritans and many others and we certainly would encourage you to get in contact with one of those if you or someone you know is struggling the samaritans can be reached on 116 123 or you can email joe That's jo at samaritans.org.